Hi, I'm Deb Hunter, and welcome to All Things Tudor, the podcast that blows the dust off the history books and brings the world of the Tudors roaring back to life. Each episode will bring you awesome guests and topics, stories, and revelations. The power, the sex, the scandals, the romance, and the ruthlessness. So join me, and together we'll pull back the curtain and discover the real lives of the Tudors. Welcome to All Things Tudor. I'm Deb Hunter, and with me today are Matt Lewis and Nathan Amin. How are you guys today? I'm good, thank you. How are you? Doing great, thanks. Who wants to go first? I'm, I'm happy to go first and tell you that Richard is the rightful King of England. She'd never have been challenged in the field by this Welsh usurper uh, who came in and stole his throne with the contents of France's prisons. When I think that pretty much sums it up. And I am more than happy to let Matt go first and describe to us how this evil, maniacal tyrant killed his his nephews, usurped the throne, and ultimately destroyed his own house. So off you go, Matt. Let's hear that uh, wonderful tale. (laughs) Yeah, so, I mean, I think, obviously, Richard III gets this press in which he is the, the terrible monster, you know, driven by ambition, steals the throne, people say murdered his nephews and was so deeply unpopular that he's kind of faced with this invasion in August 1485 and driven from the throne of England. But I kind of feel like that's a, an oversimplification of what's gone on. I mean, it, I'm not I'm not going to deny at any point during this that Richard clearly faces opposition, which means that on some levels he has become unpopular because the fact is there is an army in the field that defeats him. And that's packed with people who don't want Richard to be king. So there's no point me sitting here and saying Richard was amazing and everybody loved him because that's very clearly not true. I think what's what's interesting is perhaps why people turned against Richard. And I think it has less to do with this notion that he's a, a horrible, ambitious tyrant who murdered his nephews and more to do with the fact that he has what I think were probably considered at the time as quite weird and novel ideas on how a country might be run. And we can see this during his activities as kind of Lord of the North while he's Duke of Gloucester running the North of England for Edward. He does seem to have this, what would have been considered a strange interest in the lot of the common man and sort of championing the common man against his social superiors. He, he very often goes against the norms of this system of, liv- of livery and maintenance that's supposed to see him protect men who are in his service and sort of get them out of legal tangles and whatever else. And we actually see situations where he sends his retainers to prison to face charges. So far from the idea of this man who will do anything to gather power, he's sort of rejecting the biggest, most obvious route to power for him by gathering to him all of these corrupt, criminal, kind of bully people who would get him that power. You know, the Earl of Warwick had kind of packed his um, his faction in this way, and that was what had allowed him to get to a position to challenge Edward ultimately and kick Edward IV off the throne. And Richard kind of shuns that. But we do see an awful lot of people who are, while Richard is in the north, very, very loyal to him and who really like him. So there's something 
about the way that he operates that lots of people do like, but clearly lots of people don't like. And we have to think about, I think we have to think about who is adversely affected by those attitudes of Richard. So who is upset by this? And it's going to be anyone with a little bit of power. So anyone further up the social scale who has seen themselves, you know, been put down against people that they think are, are their lessers because Richard is willing to defend those people. And I think, I think that that is one thing that people are willing to tolerate in the king's younger brother who's up in the north where, let's face it, nobody really cares what happens in the north of England so far from London. It doesn't matter. It's packed with barbarians who barely speak English and nobody's really too concerned what Richard is doing up there. But I think once he becomes king, we can see that he tries to move all of these same concerns and interests onto a national stage. And he's looking to, we get letters written to bishops and, and some of the activities early in his reign, looking to drive out kind of corruption at the local level. And I think it's that layer of society, those kind of gentry knights in the shires, who are the ones who see their roots to corruption, the, the way that they had had power under Edward IV, being shut down, and they're the ones who go to Henry Tudor in exile, and they're the ones that come back at Bosworth. So I think they're far more interested in fighting for the kind of the restoration of their corruption and roots to power than they are about the fate of the princes in the tower or anything like that. And so I think, I think that's why lots of people take to the field against Richard. They can't say we're here to fight for corruption. So they say we're here to fight for the princes in the tower because that's a nice kind of chivalric um, cloak that you can throw over your real motives. So I, th I think it's interesting to think about definitely people were opposed to Richard, but precisely why were they opposed to him and why did they look to Henry Tudor? I, I, I think there you've, uh, you've touched on something quite, uh, quite interesting, is that whatever the rights or wrongs of how Richard became king, you know, the bottom line was that it did divide the people or at least divided uh, the nobility. You know, he, he couldn't hope himself to secure support from everyone amongst the nobility, and that's what left him ultimately vulnerable. You know, we, we have the Woodfield faction, for example, um, and there were many others around that faction who were looking forward to a healthy reign under Edward V. Once Edward V had been put to the side, the Woodfields and their supporters are out in the cold. Um, I mean, we, we have we have more than equivalence to that, really, and that, you know, sometimes people just cannot be united behind a single cause. And Richard, at this point, again, whether rightly or wrongly, was not perceived to be a unifying figure behind whom everyone could rally. Now, we can argue he obviously wasn't given a chance based on what happened at Bosworth, but that's by the by. The fact that Bosworth happened shows that he just couldn't reconcile the kingdom uh, behind him. Uh, I don't know if this is a sporting term that crosses the pond, but you in England, we have a term called you know, you, you lose the dressing room. And I think Richard ultimately lost the dressing room, or he at, least, he at least lost enough senior members of that dressing room to undermine his position. And that, that of course, ultimately opened the door for a complete nobody in Henry Tudor to, to, to slink his way in. You know, right man in the right place at the right time, the right age, unmarried, enough of a pedigree that they could bump him up in importance 
I always say, for, for me, Bosworth, Henry Tudor does not win Bosworth. Richard III loses Bosworth. But again, on a, on a different day, with different barkers, who knows how history would have turned out. I wonder whether anybody, any king, would have been in a position to, to bring the country together in 1483. So if we think of what's gone on before, Henry VI has now overseen a divided kingdom for a long time till he's ejected. Edward IV, incredibly charismatic. The sources will tell us the kind of guy that everybody loved to be around, yet he couldn't stop opposition initially from the Lancastrians, then from his own cousin Warwick and his brother George. And then in the 1470s, it's kind of the fact that there, there isn't anybody left to oppose him that keeps him on the throne. And then his death kind of opens this can of worms. I mean, Henry VII, you know, doesn't sit easily on his throne. He faces the Lambert Simnel revolt and then Perkin Warbeck through the 1490s, a fair amount of unrest in his own country and everything like that. So I wonder to what extent Richard is a victim of a situation that, that nobody could win, nobody could reconcile. Absolutely. I mean, history, history obviously tells us that Henry VII ended the Wars of the Roses and therefore he was that unifying figure. I like to argue that in reality, it was Henry VII's death that ultimately ended the Wars of the Roses in that he was able to accomplish what Richard hadn't been able to or Edward IV had not been able to in that he was able to die with an adult heir on the cusp uh, or rather teenage heir on the cusp of adulthood, behind whom everyone could finally unite. And that was Henry VIII. Now, we all know that Henry VIII, you know, grew up to be a bit of a wrong one in the end. But at, at, at 17 years old, he was that unifying cause that Yorkist, Lancastrians, Woodville, you know, everyone could could rally around. The, the amazement, of course, is that Henry VII was able to do what Richard was not able to do, which is effectively linger on through a 24-year reign to get to that point. You know, again, history, the narrative is Henry ended the Wars of the Roses of Bosworth. He didn't. He ended the Wars of the Roses by living long enough to, to put forward the, the Union Rose, so to speak, in Henry VIII. I have a question. Do you two believe that where Richard III lost that that colors how we think of him or how we were led to, to think of him. Because if they believed in the divine right of kings and this man was keen, killed on the, an overshadowing of his legacy. I, th I think there's two things to consider here. First of all, in regards to the modern assessments of Richard III, definitely, you know, his loss at the end of the day cleared the path for the Tudors and later historians to to write the history of Richard III, you know, and that certainly has clouded uh, a lot of what we know about Richard. So there's certainly that aspect of of the story being written um, that Richard and his heirs were not able to shape. I will point out that the Tudors did not invent the idea of propaganda. The Yorkists were at were at this game a lot before Henry VII came along. It's just the nature of the day. Um, and Richard's death, unfortunately for him, opened the doors for his reputation to be besmirched. But back in his own day, of course, these people believed that it was God that was the judge of all men on the battlefield. 
So when Richard died, as far as the men of the day were of the belief that God had judged Richard um, to death. God had not supported Richard. And that in itself probably helped a lot of these a lot of these narratives get built up around him. So, yeah, I mean, bottom line, Richard dying without an heir to speak up for him or defend him has certainly uh, clouded, clouded a lot of what we know about him to the modern day. Yeah, I'd agree um, that, you know, Richard having no one to defend him going forward means that he is a very easy target. I I would argue it's the reason people like Thomas More and Shakespeare end up writing these great villains in Richard, because there's nobody around who you have to worry about offending too much. You know, the Duke of Buckingham has ancestors who survive, and there are various other noble families who, I mean, there's, there's some evidence that suggests that More rewrote the scene in the, the Tower of London on the 13th of June to avoid offending the Duke of Norfolk um, and sort of involved other people in the story. So. But there's none of that to worry about with Richard because there's just nobody left to be upset or to fight his corner. I don't, I don't buy into the idea that there was lots and lots of Tudor government-sponsored propaganda against Richard. I don't think Henry VII particularly ever says anything that attacks Richard. I think this happens organically around Henry and certainly, you know, it serves Henry's needs. So he doesn't tell people to stop it. Or if he does, it's in a kind of really half-hearted, I'll stop saying that, but please carry on kind of way. So I don't think there is government-sponsored attacks on Richard. There's this organic idea that grows around him that if Henry Tudor is going to end the troubles in England, which let's face it, everybody wants, which is less to do with the fact of whether you like or don't like Henry Tudor, nobody wants the war to carry on. It's been going on for 30, 40 years, and everyone just wants an end to it. And if that means you don't like Henry, but you have to accept him and, and back his rule, then so be it. So everyone is happy for Richard to be suddenly painted as this monster who was the evil from which England had to be saved and that Henry Tudor comes along and saves him. And I think that's just a narrative that kind of settles in, is unchallenged, and then just builds over the next hundred years. And throughout the, the 16th century, you see every iteration of the story from Virgil, Moore, Edward Hall, Hollinshed up to Shakespeare is just kind of a ramping up of that rhetoric around Richard and that there's always you know, new details to add to the story when people rewrite the tale because you've got to have something new to sell books and it just kind of reaches a pinnacle in in Shakespeare so ultimately yes I think it's partly because Richard has no one to defend him and there is definitely that religious element that that Nathan speaks about and it's interesting that Richard wears his crown on the, the battlefield at Bosworth. And the last time an English king did this was Henry V at Agincourt. And I think Henry V does it at Agincourt partly to place the Lancastrian claim to the throne, which had been disputed ever since his dad had, had taken the throne from Richard II, place that claim before God for judgment. Well, at Agincourt in 1415, Henry V gets the answer that he wants. I'm wearing my crown, I'm king of England, and God has given me a victory against the odds. Therefore, I deserve to be king. End of story. I think Richard, maybe looking to the example of Henry V, tries to repeat that in 1485. He wears his crown to place his claim to the throne before God for everybody to see. You know, he's marking himself out as king. And this may play to ideas of the lack of popularity of his kingship, the fact that he, he is facing these rebels, but also maybe to some personal elements to do with his scoliosis. You know, does he? 
worry about the fact that what his physical condition says to him uh, says about him might impact people's view of him. So does he place his claim to the crown before God for judgment in order to try and get the answer that he wants? And we know that he wouldn't get the answer that he wants. He ends up losing at Bosworth. And that would kind of magnify this idea that Richard was very deliberately, very publicly placing his crown on the line for God to judge and that God has judged against him to the to the minds of the late 15th, 16th century. And so, again, that would help to create this image that Richard was not the rightful king of England, that he he needed to be deposed and that Henry Tudor was right to have done that. So kind of Richard creates this narrative around himself that really backfires when he loses. If he'd won at Bosworth, he would have been able to say, God has judged me king and none of you can dare to challenge any of that ever again. But because he loses, that whole thing backfires and works in exactly the opposite way, where he is now this monster. You know, John Rouse describes him as an antichrist. He, he has placed himself before God for judgment and he has got the answer that he didn't want. If you're a fan of Tudor history, come join us at All Things Tudor, a Facebook group dedicated to, well, All Things Tudor. Members can contribute a wide array of subject matter about Tudor history. You can also listen to the All Things Tudor podcast. There's a book club and a weekly clubhouse live audio chat, often featuring very special guests. Look for upcoming surprises for the group members in 2022. Become a member of one of the largest groups of Tudor history enthusiasts on the planet. Simply go to the Facebook search bar, type in All Things Tudor, select the option to join the group, and of course answer the membership questions. Join us now at All Things Tudor. Look forward to seeing you. What do you think about that, Nathan? Yeah, it's exactly correct. I mean, this is how people of the day would would have viewed it. Again, when Henry VII would have left Bosworth Field and he started his long progress back to London, all those towns and villages that he walked through, the people who would have seen him go past, they would have known who he was. They would have heard perhaps snippets of this Earl of Richmond coming, coming through to challenge the king. But now before them, they didn't... You know, they wouldn't have booed him. They wouldn't have hissed at him. They wouldn't have thrown things at him. They would have accepted him as God's own choice to be their king. And that's a very easy way for someone like Henry Tudor to then be able to suppress any sedition against him. We know of the plots against Henry throughout his reign, but they were always very minor plots by a very small group of dissidents. There was never any real widespread rebellion against Henry Tudor. You know, two years later, when the Irish and the Germans invade at the head of the plot known as the Lambert Simnel Conspiracy, the city of York, Richard's own famous city, stays loyal to Henry Tudor, as does large parts of Yorkshire. You know, that famous Richard III um, stomping grounds. And a big reason for that will be because, well, God had already judged Henry the victor two years earlier at Bosworth. You know, it was a direct runoff. God picked Henry. That's how people would have interpreted it at the time. And when Henry won another battle at Stoke Field in 1487, and then yet another battle in 1497 against rebels, you know, 
Henry dies with a record of 3-0 and in battles. He's undefeated. He's the Floyd Mayweather of his day, you know, except God himself has, has, has picked him. Yeah, and I think that definitely helps to play into this, uh, this narrative that Henry is the saviour, therefore Richard can be, but to some extent has to be the evil monster because Hen- Henry needs to position himself as saving England. Well, if England needs to be saved... It has to be saved from something. So there has to be a bad guy to, to save England from. And Richard just kind of fits into that mould of being able to say he was a, a bad man, terrible king, everybody hated him, and heroic Henry came and saved the country. And that's, I think, a very one-dimensional way of looking at, at what happened. And it, it, again, plays with that idea that Henry wanted us to understand that he'd ended the Wars of the Roses at Bosworth. Nothing is ever quite that simple. Richard was not a horrible man. I don't think he murdered his nephews. I don't think he did a lot of the things that he's been accused of by history. And I think there are various reasons why people did oppose him. But nevertheless, people did oppose him. He lost his crown in battle. Henry won. And that almost imposes this narrative of the heroic king sent by God to save England from an evil, cruel tyrant who should never have worn the crown. The, the, the flip side of all this, of course, is that Henry himself has also received um, quite a bit of criticism, um, obviously not on the level of, of Richard III, but it is criticism of Henry down the centuries that he was a dour man, uh, and a, a, a cold man, a bleak man, and, and someone quite suspicious and perhaps even a coward for not fighting on the front lines of Bosworth like Richard III. But I always consider, if we take that 28-year-old man, Henry Tudor, he has somehow managed to bring together a conspiracy of men in in France. Um, granted, a lot of those men are there for their own reasons. The Woodfields, for example, are there because they've effectively been chased out of England. The Lancastrians are there because they've been chased out of England. Um, but it doesn't matter. They gather around Henry Tudor and he's able to convince them to sail across the Channel, land in Wales, march 250 miles through hostile territory to England and go into battle against a larger royal force. A dour man with no charisma does not do that. So I think we on one side we have Richard, Clearly not this evil, you know, an evil mastermind, an evil tyrant, as he's often portrayed. And on the other side, we have Henry, a man who's not anywhere near as dour as history has portrayed him. You know, this is a man who we have foreign ambassadors who are on record saying that when he spoke, his face lit up with charisma. You know, he would have been in person a good leader, a leader who, who somehow was able to convince these men to march towards their death. So it is interesting as we as we are going through the studies as years are going by, we are able to um, to recalibrate exactly who these men were. They're not one-dimensional figures, you know, the evil tyrant on one side and the boring accountant king on the other side. They're much more well-rounded people who may have, in a different age, have perhaps become allies at court. Yeah, I think there's there's so many similarities between Richard and Henry's stories. I mean, they're different in lots of ways, but but lots of striking similarities between them as well, I think. But I kind of wonder whether people 
were were actually all that interested in Henry. So when they're following at Bosworth, this sounds like an attack on Henry and it isn't meant to be. But these people have abandoned Richard and England and gone over to this, this potential opponent in Brittany and then France. I wonder whether they're less concerned with who Henry is than the fact that they think he might be easily controlled. And he would show that he wasn't. You know, his, the early years of his government are very Murray and Blue. They're very Yorkist in colour. It looks a lot like an Edward IV government. But I think once Henry learns his craft and gets his feet under the table, he starts to push against all of that stuff. And people begin to realise that they've got way more than they bargained for in Henry Tudor. So I don't know to what extent you might think he, it was maybe less to do with his personal charisma and, and lure. Not that I don't buy into the dour Henry VII idea at all, but was it less to do with his lure and appeal and charisma than it was the fact that he looked like someone who could be easily controlled and kind of just be a puppet for these people who wanted an Edward IV style of government back? Yes. I mean, I take on board the idea that Henry, Henry Tudor was definitely envisioned to be the puppet behind whom the Yorkist dissidents could get their claws into. You know, the, the Woodville faction who made up a, a significant portion of Henry's army and Henry's support at this time, you know, they, they had they had looked forward to years uh, in government under Edward V. Now, Edward V was out of the way. The best thing they could come up with was to marry Edward V's sister, Elizabeth of York, to Henry and use him as their puppet for the reins of government. So I definitely buy into that. I think that, we, that there still needs to be an element of Henry's own agency in this, however, because, you know, he is the right man in the right place. He's the right candidate. He's probably the only candidate, you know, for this plot against Richard at this point. But if he had been, if he had been another figure in the guise of Henry VI, I just don't think they would have been able to have made it, made, made it to Bosworth. They wouldn't have been able to leave France. So I think I just think he's the right candidate. He has all the right bearings, which is not to say, of course, that they still did not expect him to be their puppet once he was on the throne. And as you say, they didn't know Henry Tudor at all. I mean, possibly at this point, Henry Tudor did not know himself. I still view Bosworth in many respects as being his final campaign after a life um, after a life spent under the custody of other people. He's 28 years old. He's never had any control over his own destiny. I'm, not, I'm hesitant to say it was a kamikaze mission, per se, but I think by the time we've reached 1485, Henry Tudor is ready to do or die. They, you know, his life is moving on. He's still unwed. He's still stuck as a quasi-prisoner overseas. He's had no control of his destiny. He's gone for it. Um, ironically, it was Richard who also launched a, a do-or-die attack on, on on Henry, and he was the one who God judged on that day. I think it's also striking to, to add into this the kind of the international dimension, so the, the French politics in what's going on. So we know at Christmas 1482, uh, Louis XI, King of France, stops paying the annual pension he's been giving to uh, Edward IV since 1475, since he invaded France. And then we know that as Edward IV is dying in the spring and, and in April of 1483, the French are launching attacks on English shipping in the Channel. They're attacking the south coast of England. I think Louis XI is about to kind of reignite the Hundred Years' War. I think he views Edward IV as a bit of a soft target. And perhaps when Edward IV dies, thinks, great, you know, a 12-year-old kid, that's even better. This is going to make England 
you know, really easy to to get hold of. And then instead of that, they get Richard III, who's thirty year old man, led successful campaign in Scotland the year before, an experienced governor, was opposed to the peace in France in fourteen seventy five and wanted to carry on fighting. So a very different prospect. And I wonder whether France were trying to re reignite the Hundred Years' War. Louis XI then dies as well. They get their own minority crisis with a 13-year-old king. Was this idea of, of getting hold of Henry Tudor, backing him, getting him lots of French mercenaries and sending him over to England, at least in part about keeping Richard's eye off what was going on in France so that, that he didn't turn the tables, invade them and make the most of their minority crisis? And so... Is this really, you know, I, I think to some extent the French backed Henry Tudor without caring whether he succeeded or not, or whether he made it out of the invasion alive or who was king of England. They kind of wanted to keep Richard's eye off the ball while they sorted out what they were doing. And actually it turned out weirdly that, that the, the invasion succeeded probably against the, the odds of the French. But I think there's some interesting international politics that's nothing to really do with, with England and Henry and Richard at this point going on as well in parallel. And what's really, um, really fascinating about this entire um, period is that, you know, Henry had been in Brittany for, for a decade. And throughout that decade, both Edward IV of England and Louis XI of France desperately tried to get their hands on him. And Duke Francis of Brittany, the only thing he was able to do was really play England and France off against each other and keep, keep his hands on, on the Tudors. If he had given up the Tudors to the English, the French would have overrun him. If he'd given up the Tudors to the French, the English would have withdrawn their support of Brittany and Brittany would have been overrun. So Francis was in an awkward position. Now, as soon as Edward IV dies in 1483, there's a bit of a problem going on because now Francis no longer has his oath that he swore to Edward IV to keep the Tudors. And France are now preparing really heavily to invade. So once again, the Tudors come to the fore at that point. Richard III is able to reach an agreement. He decides to fund the Bretons with some archers to try and make sure they keep hold of Henry Tudor. But nevertheless, Henry Tudor manages to escape and he flees, the, uh, flees over the border into France, which is then where we pick up where, the story where you mentioned the French now use Henry Tudor to um, launch this invasion and harass the English crown. They don't care whether Henry wins or not. But it kind of backfires on them as well, because now Henry Tudor's on the English throne, he is thankful to his French cousins for putting him on, on the throne, but he also has his own deep loyalties to the Dukes of Brittany. You know, Brittany was his home for 12 years. They looked after him, they nurtured him, they developed him. Yes, it was in custody, but he still developed a deep affinity for the Bretons, during his time there. So when France does invasion of Brittany, Henry declares war on France. So, you know, the Yorkists who supported Henry got more than they bargained for, and so did the French. You know, they thought they were putting over, sending over someone just to harass the English crown. They ended up making a king who turned back on them and initiated a war with France. Um, for which Henry eventually was also able to draw a magnificent pension to help fund much of the rest of his reign. Um, you know, that, that Henry Tudor, he definitely was what a lot of people believed him to be. Very strategic, wasn't he? 
I do have a quick question on, on the battle itself. You've both talked about factions. What happened with the Stanley faction during the Battle of Bosworth? They were a terrible bunch of people who couldn't keep their word <laughs> to save their lives. That's what happened at almost every battle towards the Roses. No. So, I mean, the Stanleys are, are really interesting because Bosworth is quite unusual in that you have three armies there who aren't, you know, there's almost three opposing armies. You've got Richard's army, Henry's army, and then you've got the Stanleys sort of sitting off to the side. And I think it's pretty clear to both Richard and Henry that the Stanleys are going to do whatever suits the Stanleys best. And so they're both, you know, desperately trying to get the Stanleys onto their side. Um, there's not really any evidence that, that Richard threatens to execute Lord Stanley's son, but he would definitely have wanted to get Stanley, you know, remind him of his oaths of allegiance to him and everything else, while Henry would be reminding him that, you know, he's his stepfather, he's made all these promises during the, the march from Wales that he's going to support him and everything else. But it's quite an unusual battle in that there are these three um, points rather than just having two armies facing off against each other. And I think what happens is... Uh, I don't think Thomas Stanley is necessarily at the battlefield of Bosworth. He's very good at staying away from virtually all of the battles in the Wars of the Roses. What he does is use his little brother, William. And William is, is actually quite a loyal Yorkist. So he's at the, the Battle of Bloor Heath, kind of the, the really early battle in 1459. He's fighting there for the, the Earl of Salisbury, who is on the Duke of York's side. And William invariably turns up on the Yorkist side in battles, Thomas stays away and then appears kind of at the last moment, usually on the winning side to say, well, of course I was on your side all along because that's how you, you kind of make the best of it for yourself. So I think when we get to Bosworth, we have Richard's army, Henry's army, and Sir William Stanley kind of looking on from the middle. And doubtless he's been briefed by his brother about what he would like the outcome of the battle to be, but he's probably been given enough leeway to see how it goes. If Henry is losing and within the first five minutes, then absolutely you come in on Richard's side because we have to look to be supporting the one who's going to win. If it's pretty clear that Henry's going to win, then wade in on his side. And I think that's what ultimately happens. You know, he watches this unfold. The Duke of Norfolk is killed. Richard launches this charge across the battlefield and becomes kind of entangled with the, the French mercenaries that are around Henry. And I think at that point, William sees his chance. We get some suggestion, which is kind of conjecture, it's not really supported by the sources, that perhaps William Stanley is trying to intervene on Richard's side and remains as a Yorkist. That, that's kind of, you know, conjecture, like I say, it's guesswork, but that he finds himself in the, in the wrong position and ends up, you know, having to attack Richard so that he looks like, you know, he's been involved on the, the winning side again. But in reality, I think what he sees is Richard make this charge, get tangled, it's getting messy. Richard's losing. Now's the time for the Stanley faction to intervene on the side that is most likely to win, which is Henry. And that suits the Stanleys ultimately because that makes Thomas Stanley stepfather to the new King of England. But I think if the battle had gone differently, I think the Stanleys may well have intervened for Richard if they'd seen the moment being right. I don't think that they were necessarily absolutely stuck on one side or the other. I think there was definite benefits for the Stanleys in Henry winning. But I think if Richard had made a really strong showing at the start and Henry's men had been fairly quickly looking like they were going to be routed and driven off the field, I think Stanley's men would have ridden in behind Richard and said, yeah, hey, we're here to support you, my lord. We're loyal Yorkists and, and we're on your side. So I think the Stanley's make it interesting because 
both Richard and Henry, I think, would have been aware of this. And they would have to think about if and when the Stanleys were going to intervene and on whose side that might be. It adds this extra dimension to to just facing off against each other, to have to think about what this third party off to the side is going to do. And I don't think, I think the Stanleys have promised Henry a lot. I think they'd undoubtedly promised Richard a lot in terms of their allegiance and loyalty to the crown. So I don't think either side were 100% certain of what the Stanleys were going to do. And I don't necessarily think the Stanleys were 100% certain, except that they were going to make sure they were on the winning side. I think it's also important that we, you know, the the Stanleys are often treated as one uh, cohesive unit. But, you know, William and Thomas Stanley, the brothers, you know, they they, they are different men with different motives. Um, I certainly agree with the idea that Thomas Stanley was not at Bosworth Field and later history has been recrafted somewhat to make his part in this entire period far greater than it was. Um, if we take look at William Stanley, the younger brother, you know, uh, one of England's richest knights, uh, a highly ambitious man, a man who, far from being this idea that the Stanley sat on the fences, William Stanley was always an ardent Yorkist. He was always uh, deeply loyal to Edward IV and in time would have been loyal to his children. Um, I think William Stanley, you know, Matt's gone over the, the, the discussion of of their motivations, but I think it's William Stanley who ultimately launches that attack into the main body of Richard III. Um, a lot of it comes down to the fact that I believe he had been given, he had been um, subject to an attainter by Richard III just before Bosworth. You know, they, they were still campaigning for uh, Thomas Stanley's support and with it the bulk of the Stanley Stanley um, affinity, but William Stanley was effectively a lost case under Richard III. He had nothing to lose, and that's why he himself engaged at Bosworth when he saw the opportunity to take out Richard III. He possibly did that without his older brother's input, knowledge. Perhaps he was acting independently. Um, That's something that that we're not, that we don't quite have the insight in. I think it's really interesting that we, the most one of the most contemporary chronicles we have, the Great Chronicle of England, has it written that after the battle, it was William Stanley who presented the Crown of England to Henry Tudor with the words, Sir, I now make you King of England. I mean, that's pretty bold from a lowly knight to go up to someone and say, I make you King of England. And then we look at the, the next 10 years. William Stanley has just effectively made a king and believes he's going to get all the rewards due to him. And he gets effectively nothing. He covers an earldom. He doesn't get it. His brother, Thomas Stanley, who, as I say, I believe he didn't do anything at Bosworth. Thomas Stanley is made Earl of Derby. He's the king's stepfather. He has all the riches sent his way. William Stanley... The man who became a kingmaker receives nothing. Um, and 10 years later, when Perkin Warbeck is rattling around England, William Stanley defects once more. And for that, it costs him his head. You know, and I, I think there's an element of 10 years of bitterness on William Stanley's side at that point that does uh, push him into yet another uh, rebellion against the king. I mean, he, he, he's, he's, like a mini, he's like a mini war of the kingmaker. Just nowhere near as effective. So I, 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 yeah, Warwick wannabe. Yeah, um, and I see, I see that. So I see that the Stanleys, if we split them up at Bosworth, 
it makes far more sense to me what's occurred. Thomas Stanley, the stepfather, playing it safe, not willing to to lose his, you know, lose, lose his power in the northwest. William Stanley, the junior brother, nothing to lose. He's gone for it. Uh, and he's been successful. And it's that ambition that would eventually prove his downfall, but not under Richard III, under the man he made king, Henry VII. And then I should add that once he's been executed for treason, all of the later records seem to be rewritten to amplify Thomas Stanley's part at Bosworth. It is now Thomas Stanley handing the crown to Henry VII. You know, it's Thomas Stanley who is now the hero of Bosworth, when arguably he probably wasn't even there. Yeah, and I mean, all the contemporary records say, for example, that council meeting in the Tower of London on the 13th of June, 1483, where Hastings is executed. Lots of the later Tudor sources have Thomas Stanley being there. And, you know, Thomas More famous, famously has him being struck on the head, you know, taking one for the team and everything else. But all of the contemporary sources that are written around 1483 list the people who were there and none of them mention Thomas Stanley at all. So I think we get early in the 16th century, like you say, probably after the execution of William, Thomas is kind of rewriting history backwards to insert himself into a lot of these events. And I think he inserts himself into that council meeting in 1483 as if to prove that he was always on the side of Edward IV and his children to make that that case even stronger, because all of the sources actually say he wasn't there at all. And I think to some extent that demonstrates the dangers of relying too heavily on some of those early 16th century sources, because people are spinning their own story backwards. You know, Richard is the monster, so Henry can be the saviour. And people are very keen to distance themselves from Richard's reign for very good, strong political reasons. Nobody wants to be, Thomas Stanley doesn't want to be the man who stands in Henry VII's council and says, I quite like Richard. He was all right. He was a good bloke. He would have done a good job if you hadn't killed him. No, no one wants to say that. So they now all have to position themselves to be distanced from Richard's reign, which they were all involved in and complicit in for two years. And I think Thomas Stanley does that by kind of rewriting that history backwards, by taking some of the things that his brother's done and claiming them for himself and inserting himself into events that he was never actually involved in. You've both hit on really good points today. We've talked about power, passion, propaganda, the battle itself, the factions. And I wanted to see if you have any last things you would like to add. And we can just sit back and take this all in. You've given us so much information. I think the one thing that I would probably like to add is that if we're if we're viewing the Battle of Bosworth as some kind of a climactic set piece at the end of our Hollywood movie, what we're missing here to some extent is the director who was behind all of this, which I think to some some great extent is Margaret Beaufort. Um, I'm not someone who buys into the idea that Margaret Beaufort had anything to do with the death of the princes in the tower, because I don't think they were murdered at this point anyway. I'm not someone who buys into the idea that Margaret Beaufort had this lifelong ambition, burning religious zeal to put her son on the throne of England. None of that. But clearly, very soon after Richard III becomes king, within weeks probably, Margaret turns against him. So before Edward IV dies, she's on the verge of getting her son back home. We have this, uh, this pardon that's drafted that will allow Henry to come home and possibly even marry one of Edward IV's children. But Edward IV's death, kind of before he signs that, removes that possibility. Um, we know that Margaret has a meeting with Richard 
just before his coronation. We don't know what's discussed there, but I think it's impossible they don't discuss this pardon. Is Richard going to sign it and allow Henry to come home? He must have said no, um, because you know, in a, a fairly fragile new regime, maybe you don't want to invite uh, a potential troublemaker and rebel back or someone that you don't know what their motives will be. And so Margaret is then involved in organising the October rebellions. And she must have started organising that. Richard is crowned on the 6th of July to organise revolt for early October. If you work backwards with getting people organised and messages to Brittany and back, she must have been organising that fairly soon after uh, the, the coronation in early July. And so I think she's she's very clearly orchestrating stuff. Where I think she might have a role in The Princes in the Tower is in Crowland Chronicle's story that a rumour is spread as part of the October rebellions that the princes are dead. I can see Margaret being behind or involved in promulgating that rumour, as well as the rumour that Richard plans to marry his niece, which we know, as far as we know, is almost certainly not true. He was planning to marry a Portuguese princess and Elizabeth was going to marry a Portuguese duke as part of the same arrangements. But there's clearly this propaganda campaign going on against Richard. And I can kind of see Margaret being behind that. I think she's decided to, at this point, throw caution to the wind in an effort to get her son back from exile. I think she backs Buckingham to be king in October 1483. And when Buckingham's gone, she kind of takes that final step of thinking, well, the only way I can get Henry back now is, is if he is the, the figurehead of revolt, if he comes back to try and make himself king. And I think it's only then that she she kind of makes this move. But, you know, if Stanley swings the Battle of Bosworth, it's partly because he's married, Thomas Stanley is married to Margaret Beaufort. He gets to be the new king's stepfather. How much leverage did Margaret, you know, make out of that? How much did she play on Thomas Stanley on the rewards that he would get for making her son king and being stepfather to the king? So although Margaret, you know, women aren't on battlefields, that doesn't mean they don't have a huge impact on the politics that is going on around these things. And like I say, I think if Bosworth is our big movie set piece at the end of the film, Margaret is the director who's kind of organised all of this and sort of made it happen. And I don't mean that in a way that I think Margaret is this wicked woman who's you know scheming and masterminding all of these horrible things. She very clearly had reasons for doing what she was doing. She was at the end of a tether, I think, and it also demonstrates her absolute ability, the competence that she had, the the ability to to make all of these things cohese around her son and to bring the Battle of Bosworth, which must have looked on paper like Henry was doomed to lose it. And from the French point of view, it was going to be a distraction for Richard, but very little more. But it must be Margaret that helps to arrange that chessboard and particularly that third force, the Stanleys. Margaret must have helped to arrange that chessboard to tip it into Henry's favour in the end. You know, Henry may well still have lost on the day and, and perhaps should have lost on the day. But I think Margaret Beaufort has you know, a fairly big role to play in all of this. I've, I've said before, if there was a winner of the Wars of the Roses, for my money, it's Margaret Beaufort. And I, I, and I think at this point, um, God help us all, but the big discussion point at this current moment in time on social media groups, probably thanks to the rise in, in fiction work on this very battle is Margaret Beaufort and whether she was the active power in all of this or whether she was the reactive power in all of this. And it seems to be most camps come down on one 
or the other side. I mean, for me, I view Margaret Beaufort very much as being the reactive power. She's reacting to what's happening at Richard III's court. That includes the princes in the tower. I feel that she is a reactive force and she is able to manipulate external events to her own advantage. Uh, other people, of course, will see Margaret Beaufort as being far more active in all of this, perhaps even being the mastermind behind the disappearance of those princes. Unfortunately, we will never know, I guess. She definitely played her part in destiny, that's for sure. I want to thank both of you for joining us today. I want to thank the listeners for joining us on All Things Tudor. Join us for the Facebook group where we will be talking about their books as part of the Battle of Bosworth. And guys, thanks so much for joining today. No problems. Thank you very much for having us. What a great conversation. And if you want to check out Matt and Nathan's work, do so. It's available from your local bookstore or on Amazon. Thank you, Matt and Nathan, for joining us. Thank you to our listeners. Have a great day. Bye. You've been listening to All Things Tudor. My thanks go to listeners, my husband, and my team. If you like what you hear, leave a review, follow wherever you get your podcast, and share with your friends to help others find the show. Join the All Things Tudor Facebook community to connect with tens of thousands of Tudor history lovers. You can also connect with me across social media at the Deb ATL. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch y'all later. <laughs>